everyone, and welcome. I'd like to start off by thanking everyone for their patience with us while we've been putting this show together. The startup process on stuff like this can move at a slow pace sometimes, so I really do appreciate everyone's patience. That being said, I want to talk a little bit about Two Guns before we get into the episode. Two Guns is a place that I pass by often during my years spent as an over-the-road truck driver. Now, I had always wanted to stop by and explore, but I never had the nerve or the time until one day when I had my wife on the truck with me. So I brought the idea up to her, and she was fairly reluctant to indulge me, but she did anyway because she loves me. Thank you, Bavis. Anyways, what we found at Two Guns was absolutely breathtaking. Never in my wildest dreams did I expect to find what we'd found there. We spent hours just walking around, and by the end of it, my wife came away with a completely different view on history. We both absolutely loved it. But just when I thought that I'd seen it all, I quickly found out that I knew absolutely nothing about this town. When I started doing my research, all I can say is that I guess it felt like an emotional roller coaster ride. Two Guns is probably the greatest movie that's never been made and the greatest town that doesn't exist. There are no words to describe this place and its story, so I'll definitely try my best. I chose this as my first episode because I have to say, this is probably where it all started for me. I've always had a fascination with the ghost towns and the legends of the Southwest, but this town, more or less, is what has given me the desire to do this show. So that being said, I hope I can do it some justice. And after the show, please feel free to drop by our Facebook page where I'll have plenty of photos from the story posted. And as always, thank you for listening. Two Guns sits on the east side of Canyon Diablo, located in north-central Arizona, about halfway between Flagstaff and Winslow, on Interstate 40. The surrounding mountains and plateaus have played an important role in western history since the coming of the Dawnmen, the area's first aboriginal inhabitants. Following the Dawnmen were the basket makers, and the Pueblo I and Pueblo II periods is shown by the cliff dwellings within Canyon Diablo and within its tributaries. Pot shards recovered at Two Guns have placed the greatest density of early inhabitants to between 1050 and 1600 AD, with the highest population being between 1050 and 1300 AD. This was actually the greatest native population that the region has ever seen, and this is due to once fertile farmlands that were created by disintegrated fields of volcanic lava and ash that once spewed out of the San Francisco mountains to the west. Even before the beginning of man's history in the area, a giant meteor flashed out of the skies, slamming into the earth just east of Two Guns, creating a giant meteor crater. Most scientists believe that this meteor weighed several million tons and was actually part of a once-existing planet that was once in orbit between Jupiter and Mars. The mid-1500s brought the first white men to the area in the form of a detached unit of Coronado's expedition, sent out in search of precious metals in a rumored Great Canyon and Great River out west. It was also during this time that the legends of the lost mines of the Padres was originated, spurring further exploration of this area by the Spanish. A map surfaced in the early 1900s that detailed a location of buried silver that was supposedly hidden during an Indian attack on Spanish miners in the 1700s, and in 1919, a piece of 18th century body armor and one silver bar were actually unearthed just west of two guns. The legend of the buried Spanish treasure brings treasure hunters still to this day, 
But that's not the only reason they still show up, but we'll get into that later. Now, Two Guns has a long and violent history of ferocious battles between white settlers and native tribes, as well as the native tribes battling with each other. Wagon trains with white settlers moving west were annihilated and U.S. cavalry troops experienced several attacks, but one battle in particular sticks out like a sore thumb. In 1871, the Navajos were employing new strategies of defense against the raiding Apaches. When they appeared, one group would fight while the other would race south to the south end of Diablo Canyon to block any escape route that the Apaches might have. With hope to ambush them, they would wait patiently each time but to no avail. It seemed as if the Apaches had just disappeared out of thin air. This went on for years with the Navajos never discovering their secret to the successful evasion until one day in June of 1878. That June, the Apaches raided a Navajo village in the Megala Desert, killing every man, woman, and child except for three young girls that they took as prisoners. At that same time, a second raiding party was out raiding another village nearby. The Navajo district chief struck out in a frenzy with 25 warriors ahead of the raiders out to the Mogollum Rim trails in hopes of setting up an ambush for the unsuspecting Apaches. They waited and waited, and to their surprise, no Apaches ever showed up. Puzzled, the war party started back home with scouts at their flanks. A messenger sent to find the Apaches also soon returned with the grim news of the second attack in which many Navajos were relentlessly slain as well. Now, it was brought to their attention that out of all the loot that the Apaches had made off with, they didn't take any of the Navajos' prized horses, and this puzzled them. They followed vanishing trails, searched high and low, and to their dismay still could not locate the Apache war party. Desperate to find them, and in this once and for all, they dispatched scouts out on their fastest horses to try and catch the Apaches before they made it out of Navajo country. In the late afternoon, the scouts reached what is now Two Guns and decided to look around. In silence, they made their way through the grass and sagebrush to the rim of the canyon expecting to see nothing, but instead they were greeted with voices coming up through the cracks in the ground. They were standing on top of an underground cabin, and the Apaches just happened to be in it. Two scouts retreated back to their horses and raced back to the river where the Navajo war party had gathered and relayed this information. The leaders at once sent out their war parties full speed back to the canyon and arrived just as nightfall was setting in. Under the cover of darkness, the jubilant Navajo warriors closed in on their unsuspecting enemy. The entrance to the cave was in the side of Diablo Canyon situated right behind what is now Two Guns. As they closed in, they took time to seal off every possible exit to the cave before shooting the two entrance guards and sealing off the entrance. They then proceeded to gather anything that would burn, placed it in every opening to the cave, and set it ablaze. Realizing their fate, the desperate Apaches tried escaping by scaling up the cavern walls, only to be met with bullets and more fire from above by Navajo riflemen. The smoke and fumes that were sucked in through the mouth of the cave re-emerged above the plateau through the cracks in the ground, and as fast as the fuel could burn, more was added. In desperation, the Apaches slaughtered their horses and used what little water they had along with the blood from their horses to help extinguish the fire. They also attempted to seal the entrance to the cave with boulders and corpses of the slain horses. 
It was at this point that a spokesman for the Apache managed to break from the heat-ridden barrier in a desperate attempt to bargain for their lives. The proposal? An age-old custom common among tribes in the southwest at the time. Paying in goods and stock to evade corporal punishment for murder. Entertaining the idea, one of the Navajo leaders said, Send out the three girls, then we'll talk. The Apache spokesman stalled as long as he could until finally confirming what the Navajo had feared. The three girls had already been tortured to death for amusement by the Apache on the first day of the raid. In a fit of rage, the Navajos unleashed a volley of bullets into the cave and proceeded to light it on fire yet again. The fires burned up like the pits of hell as smoke billowed out of the cracks in the earth, drowning out the starlit sky. The last desperate attempt to escape with their lives had failed. They would all die in that cave. The fire was allowed to burn out on its own, yet the rock didn't cool off enough to enter the cave until the following afternoon. As the Navajo warriors entered the cave, they themselves were shocked at the sight of the terrible destruction they had brought upon their enemy. Bodies everywhere, piles of burned and charred remains of both men and horses. Many of the horses had holes poked through them as a last attempt to allow oxygen into the cave. The Apache dead were stripped of any valuables they had and left to rot in that hot Arizona cave. Altogether, 42 Apaches died that day. The cruel deaths of these three little girls had been avenged and justice had been served. This incident stopped further use of the cave by the Apaches, and in fact, no further raids were ever undertaken against the Navajo by the Apaches ever again. I really would like to take the time to thank you for listening to the show. I appreciate everyone's patience throughout our growing pains. Now, this is the first show I've ever produced, and I'll admit that it's been a bit tricky finding that balance between work, school, my family, and my listeners, but I know I'll get it figured out someday. So that being said, I'd like to make a special offer to my core group of listeners that I have right now. For those of you who are showing your support for the show, I have a proposition for you. The first 100 listeners to find and request membership to our private Facebook group will receive free lifetime, that's free lifetime, unlimited access memberships. That's right, you'll get access to all bonus content plus regular content for free. On top of that, the first 100 listeners to sign up for a basic Patreon membership for just $5 a month will receive a limited one-time-only t-shirt showing you were one of the first 100 listeners. These t-shirts will never be printed again, so please help us make history by supporting the show. Head on over to patreon.com slash backroadsasw, that's patreon.com slash backroadsasw, or find our group on Facebook by searching Backroad Legends Top 100. And remember, you can also find our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Himalaya Radio app, and at our homepage on Captivate, which the link for that is on our Facebook page as well. Now, I know it's been a slow start, but I have a wealth of stories and information that I'm just chomping at the bit to share with the world, but I can't do it without you, the listener. Thanks again, and we'll see you in the next town. Just two short years after the massacre at Death Cave, the railroad arrived at Diablo Canyon. Construction for a bridge across the canyon was halted for 10 years due to financial problems, and as a result, a small railroad town named Canyon Diablo sprung up. 
To say that this town was lawless and wild would be an understatement. The town was mostly made up of drifters and gamblers, and the closest law enforcement of any kind was about a hundred miles away. Soon, the small settlement earned a reputation of being meaner than Tombstone and Dodge City combined. The town was comprised mostly of shacks with two lines of buildings facing each other in a central street aptly named Hell Street. Along Hell Street stood 14 saloons, 10 gambling dens, 4 brothels, and 2 dance halls that were hardly more than brothels themselves. Wedged between these rickety shacks were a few eating counters, a grocery, and a dry goods store. Now this town was so mean that when they finally got their first peace officer, his badge was pinned on him at 3pm and he was laid out for burial at 8pm. Actually, throughout the small town's history, not one lawman survived his career as every single one of them were shot dead in the streets. Graves filled up fast in the city's Boot Hill Cemetery along with several graves outside of town in the surrounding countryside where murder victims were often just buried where they were found. At one point, there was a sea of makeshift wooden grave markers in this area, but today only one grave still stands preserved. A stone marker with the name Herman Wolf on it. Herman Wolf died peacefully in 1899 and was actually the only resident in the town's short history to have done so. Not one other soul was lost to a nonviolent death. Train robberies became a full time job for many residents of the town, so much so that the local business owners could never count on receiving supplies to stock up their inventory. The discovery of platinum just outside of Two Guns in 1886 did nothing but increase these robberies. The most noted of these occurred on a cold March night in 1889. Four cowboys that worked for a local cattle company got together on the night of March 21st, 1889 and set out to rob the Atlantic Pacific Fast Express No. 7 as it stopped in Canyon Diablo for water. As soon as the train stopped, they grabbed the engineer and fireman, throwing them out of the cab. They quickly blew the express safe, grabbed all the money and jewelry in it, and rode off into the cold Arizona night. After leading authorities on a wild goose chase, as bandits often did in that day, the four were finally all apprehended some time later, tried and convicted, and all four were sentenced to 25 years in the territorial prison in Yuma, Arizona. None of them served their full terms and were all released early. Pretty basic, right? Well, here's where the story gets interesting. Sometime after their release, one of the bandits confessed to burying the treasure along the canyon rim around two guns. And all told, the bandits made off with around $100,000 in gold, silver, and jewelry. And that's what it was worth in 1889. That's the equivalent of close to $2.8 million in today's currency, and it has never been found. Treasure hunters from around the world have yet to locate this buried treasure, and it's still said to be buried in the Arizona desert right along the canyon rim in two guns. Will you be the one to find it? I would definitely have to say though, my favorite robbery story to come out of two guns is that of John Shaw and Bill Smith, and it's become to be known as Drink for the Dead. In 1905, two thirsty, drunk, and greedy cowboys stumbled into a saloon in Winslow, Arizona. Upon ordering a drink, they happened to notice a stack of 600 silver dollars stacked on a dice table nearby. Giving each other a nonchalant signal, the two quickly moved in on the stack of silver dollars and snuck out the door before the bartender even finished pouring their drinks. 
The pair made their way out to two guns and it wasn't long before they were spotted. Word spread back to the sheriff of Navajo County, who in turn rounded up his deputy and headed out to two guns. Upon arrival, it didn't take long for the sheriff and his partner to locate the two bandits and they quickly set up for an ambush. The second that they spotted the two men, a gunfight erupted. A hail of bullets ripped through both of the bandits, leaving one dead and one seriously injured. Bill Smith was taken to the closest hospital, and John Shaw was buried quickly in a shallow grave. The deed was done, right? Wrong. Word of the shootout quickly made it back to the drunks over in the Wigwam Saloon over in Winslow. Upon receiving the news and after a long awkward silence, one of the saloon patrons said, Those two boys paid for their drinks and didn't even get to down their own whiskey. Another replied, Now you know lawmen don't go around giving dead men drinks. A third chimed in, That fellow has a drink coming to him, and not getting what he paid for, that just ain't right. We should go down to Canyon Diablo and give him one. Well, the idea caught on quickly, and within minutes, 20-odd liquored-up cowboys boarded a train for the short journey west. They arrived in town with several assorted bottles of whiskey, borrowed a shovel, and proceeded to find John Shaw's shallow grave. Once located, they quickly dug up Shaw's stiff, already decaying corpse and stood him upright. He was then given his going-away drink from a brown bottle just as the sun cleared the horizon. The patrons were actually able to take six pictures which were then displayed in the Winslow Saloon for many, many years to come, and can still be seen to this day on the internet. As the 20th century arrived in Two Guns, modernization came with it. A road was being built through town. Now, This small dirt road went by many names and in 1914 was designated the Old Trails Highway, but later became known as Route 66. Settlers began setting up shops around the area to accommodate travelers passing through, and in 1922, Earl and Louise Cundiff arrived in the area and bought everyone out. They filed a 320-acre range claim which encompassed the part of the canyon that Two Guns sits today and began construction. They put up many stone buildings and before long, Two Guns had a gas station and a restaurant. Their business thrived as more and more Americans started traveling the new transcontinental highway. Life was good for the Cundiffs, that is until they met Harry E. Miller, the man who Two Guns actually takes its name from now. Miller was an eccentric man, to say the least. He claimed to be full-blood Apache and preferred for people to address him as Chief Crazy Thunder or sometimes just Two Guns Miller. In 1925, he struck a deal with the Cundiffs to lease a business site for 10 years. This proved to be fatal for the Cundiffs. Once Miller secured his lease, he immediately began to build the most eccentric tourist trap I have ever heard of. He started off in Death Cave, where all those years prior, those 42 Apache men had met their fate by being burned alive. He cleaned out the cave from what was left of the massacre and quickly built a replica of Cliff Dweller ruins. He also collected the Apache skulls that still lay right where they died and decided that it was a good idea to decorate them and sell them at his roadside stand. Why not, right? He wired the cave for lighting placed a soda stand at the entrance to it, and started giving tours of the death cave. This was just on the bottom of the canyon, though. Up top was a completely different story. 
He began building enclosures on the rim of the canyon made from rock and chicken wire. Now, I've personally seen these structures and walked through them myself. And for someone with not much skill, they're actually beautifully put together. He built a house and several buildings in which he continued to then turn into a zoo filled with wild animals, all native to Arizona. In these exhibits, he had several mountain lions who mauled him more than once, tiny coral snakes, several birds, a small lynx who nearly disemboweled him, and a Gila monster who attacked him as well, leaving him with a terrible infection in his arm for six months. Crazy he might have been, but he was resilient, as none of these attacks ended his life. In 1926, Miller got into a heated debate over his lease with the Cundiffs, and in the heat of the moment, he shot and killed Mr. Cundiff. Miller was tried for murder, but was eventually acquitted under the grounds of self-defense. Soon after, Miller left two guns for good, never to be heard from again. Mrs. Cundiff later remarried and attempted to revive Two Guns back to its former glory. After several mediocre attempts, she finally sold Two Guns in 1950. The town changed hands a few times and eventually added another gas station, a hotel, a restaurant, a gift shop, a campground, and a couple of taverns. But sometime in the 70s, the gas station caught fire and burned to the ground. This sealed the fate of Two Guns as it was completely abandoned afterwards. Several people have shown interest in purchasing the land with hopes of restoring it, yet no one's actually followed through with it. The sight of two guns today is one that cannot be put into words. It definitely has a strange but intriguing energy about it. Several buildings still stand and can be explored at your own risk. There's no visitor center, no security guards, nothing. You simply pull off of the highway and step out of your car. Be careful though. The moment your feet touch this ground, you'll feel like you've been pulled back through time. Being there's a mix of emotions as you can sense this town's past in your bones as you explore the ruins. There's a mix of excitement and adventure coupled with feelings of the unknown. It's a place that has rightfully earned its spot on the map and in history, yet you've never heard anything about it. I highly, highly encourage you to stop by Two Guns and explore it if you ever get the chance. Just remember one thing if you do go. The eyes of the past are upon you. Please leave things as you find them and help preserve this gem for future generations.